Hello and welcome to High Island in Haver, Seattle's number one stage and screen podcast. Coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios on the shores of beautiful Puget Sound. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in the Pacific Northwest theater scene and on the big screen. Since 2020, we've been bringing you entertainment news and views, celebrating classic Hollywood, mixing cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interviewing talented local actors and directors, and chatting with industry experts from L.A. to Broadway to the U.K. Welcome, everyone, to episode 72. This week, we're pleased to welcome Patricia Ward-Kelly. Patricia is an accomplished writer, scholar, freelance journalist, and the widow and official biographer of Gene Kelly. She and Kelly met at the Smithsonian in 1985 when he was the host narrator for a television special for which she was the writer. Soon after, he invited her to California to write his memoirs, a job for which she recorded his words nearly every day for over 10 years. They were together until his death in 1996. Currently, Patricia serves as trustee of the Gene Kelly Image Trust and is president and creative director of the Gene Kelly Legacy, Inc. She lives in Los Angeles, where she is completing a book about her late husband. As part of this work, she's preserving and cataloging the Gene Kelly Archives, an extensive collection of letters, manuscripts, photographs, scripts, interviews, essays, poems, holograph notes, and memorabilia that will eventually be the basis of additional publications and ultimately the core of an innovative virtual Gene Kelly experience. Mrs. Kelly has recorded commentary for the DVDs of An American in Paris, The Pirate, Words and Music, Xanadu, and Hello, Dolly, and is frequently called upon to introduce Gene's films in theaters and at festivals, including two years of the TCM Classic Film Festival. She has been interviewed extensively on TCM and has represented her husband's legacy on numerous PBS specials and pledge drives and on the popular television shows So You Think You Can Dance and Dancing with the Stars. She regularly hosts scores of dancers and other artists from around the world at her home, sharing insights about the life and work of her late husband through an intimate tour of the Gene Kelly archives. Patricia's appeared in An Evening with Mrs. Gene Kelly in several cities around the world, and her one-woman tribute, Gene Kelly, The Legacy, An Evening with Patricia Ward-Kelly, sold out two nights at the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences on the occasion of Kelly's centenary in 2012, and has been touring across the United States and abroad the past four years with sold-out performances at Lincoln Center, the Pasadena Playhouse, Laguna Playhouse, the Sedona Film Festival, and many, many more. In two weeks, Friday, March 17th through Sunday, March 19th, Patricia will be here in Seattle to host another one-of-a-kind event, this time at Benaroya Hall. Gene Kelly, A Life in Music. Gene Kelly dancing on the big screen accompanied live by the Seattle Symphony. We'll be there Sunday, March 19th, and you can get your tickets at seattlesymphony.org. Patricia joins us now from her home in Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Patricia. Oh, Welcome. thank you for having me. This is just great. I'm so excited. We've been excited for this for many, many weeks, and we're excited for the show coming up in two weeks. And speaking of shows, your prior two touring shows honoring your late husband have been so well received, reading all these reviews from past years around the world, around the United States, from people young and old, folks who are lifelong fans of Gene, uh, by many people who are just discovering him for the first time. Uh, Broadway World called your show Gene Kelly, The Legacy, and Evening with Patricia Ward-Kelly superb. Sony Pictures says it's a one-of-a-kind, out-of-this-world event. And, of course, no less than Leonard Malton called it truly personal and a rarity. We're really excited for the show, like we said, coming up uh, in a couple weeks at the Seattle Symphony. I have no doubt it's going to be just as memorable. Tell us how this partnership came about with the Seattle Symphony and what uh, our audiences can expect. It started actually in Scotland because it was Scotland, it was the Royal Scottish National Orchestra that premiered this uh, live symphonic cinema show in 2018. And uh, the head of the RSNO, 
is now the head of the Seattle Symphony. And so he knows, he experienced it firsthand. It sold out. We sold out in Edinburgh. We sold out in Glasgow. People were <laughs> stomping their feet and cheering. And it was a massive ovation and, and really an extraordinary experience. So I'm so happy that Krishna believed in it, knew what it was and brought it to Seattle. So this will be the U.S. premiere in Seattle because of that. Oh, fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah, fantastic indeed. Uh, so many things premiere here. It's a, kind of a test market almost, and we're really lucky to be right in the midst of it all. How long has this uh, been being planned and worked on? How long, What's the lead time on something like this? Well, this uh, quite a while, actually. This was supposed to come out prior to the lockdown. We were going to open mm. the Seattle Symphony season, and then, boom, everything stopped. And so what I think is really nice is that this show is distinct. It's, And I think that I'm hoping that, that audiences will respond to that because I know it's still very, very difficult for a lot of people to get out. They've been now they're used to watching and streaming things. And but this is this is a very unique experience. It's a very I always say that even if you have a 2000 seat audience or two three thousand the atmosphere I try to create is that we're all essentially sitting in the living room having a chat and that there's an intimacy that comes. You can feel it in the room. There's something that really happens. You can hear, and there's no demographic for the show. So they're two-year-olds and they're 102-year-olds and they're women and they're men and they're all transfixed. And they're, so there's this communal experience of laughter and tears and delight and and so I think there's something very special that happens in the room. And what we've created is that you will see Gene up on this big screen. Uh, he'll be singing and, and you'll hear the tap dancing and hear the taps that are his. Uh, and then the orchestra plays the music live. And, and then I'm on stage weaving the stories that Gene's shared with me over our decade together. So he, he talked to me about, you know, people always say that, uh, when they think of Gene Kelly, they think of dance. When I think of Gene Kelly, I think of music because that was how often how he communicated with me when I was interviewing him over those years. When he would get really close to the bone, something that was very powerful for him, he would often revert to songs and song lyrics. So he would sing to me and these really tender moments and the lyrics had touched him so much and been part of very important parts of his life and his relationships with composers and arrangers and the musicians, uh, the trumpet player. And so you'll hear these descriptions. And I think what it does is it enables you to hear the music differently. You hear it and you can experience it in a way. I think, you know, People may watch Singing in the Rain. Uh, they've seen it again and again, but now they'll listen for different things. And I think that's important. That engagement, that's something that you cannot get just sitting home watching your computer. Well, can you describe the feeling that you had the first time this all came together musically? Because we've we've seen these pictures on screen with the, the sound that's attached to them, but to hear an orchestra play along with these. What was that like the first time you heard that? It was very moving. And I have to admit that the way that we created, you, you may or may not know that in those days, 
everything was compressed and put together. So nowadays, when you record, you have a separate bit for each instrument. You can peel off everything and but then they put it all together. So in order to recreate this or and to create this special show, I had to have extractionists. There's there are people who specialize in doing this. They had to go in and kind of surgically remove the music. Um, and Gene's voice is very much like the sound of a cello. So if you take the cello out of the soundtrack, then Gene's voice tends to get very wobbly. And so the precision that was required to, to preserve each tap sound and each of his vocal notes and yet extract the orchestra was was phenomenal. And, and also, on top of that, MGM had the great foresight to throw away all of the music. So all of the scores for Sing in the Rain, American Paris, uh, were all dumped in a landfill that became the 405 freeway. So in order to do this, I reached out to a, a good friend of mine, uh, John Wilson in the in England. And John is a great composer, conductor, and really has absorbed the American popular songbook. And so by ear, he sat down and reconstructed the scores and and it was often taking hours just to create a few bars of music. Same thing for the extractionist. Even the I got rhythm section with the kids where the you hear the taps, the the man who did the extraction for that segment, it took hours just to do a few bars of that. So the precision is, well, it's kind of interesting because the precision required to make this show really mirrors the precision that Gene demanded throughout his career. So I knew that we had, you know, you can't be sloppy. You, you have this bar that he sets and and you can't compromise and you can't you can't do it less than you can't can't do it on the cheap. So I, I'm really I'm really proud of it and all of the people who participated and uh the conductor is who's flying in from Brazil. He's now a conductor, a, a head of a, an orchestra in Brazil is coming in and he knows this music inside and out. He's also from England and he was the one who actually uh, taught John uh, Wilson conducting at the Royal Academy. So we we figured we'd, we'd bring in our ace conductor and I know the musicians at the Seattle Symphony are terrific. I mean, you've been voted the best symphony in, in America and I... I just it, it's exciting and it's exciting because you can feel it. The the music you have Gershwin, you have Cole Porter, you have Lerner and Lowe, you have Hank Mancini, Andre Previn, and it's robust, it's romantic, it's uh, moving, it's exciting and thrilling. And and the you can watch the musicians. I mean, it's fun because they're they're caught up in it too and love it because it's it's just you know sometimes this music kind of is seems to be kind of placed second class that it's sort of below um it's popular music and i i really believe that it is it's classical music it belongs on the level of um this is our sound this is the american sound and 
Gershwin was trying to create an American sound just as Gene was trying to create an American style of dance. So they're they're trying to do the same thing. And and so it's 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 really fun. And we have some uh kind of surprise elements that come in and uh surprise live elements that are that you that the audience just doesn't know that it's all about to happen and it's really fun so it's i'm not going to reveal it i'm dying to reveal it but i'm not going to because then everyone will know what's going to happen after intermission <laughs> well without any spoilers matt, matt and i participate around the seattle area in a lot of events where we bring old films to the silver screen where they were meant to be seen you uh we talked before about streaming and and competing with that and people used to seeing these things on a smaller screen but they weren't meant for that so we've participated in events that bring you know citizen kane and it's a wonderful life right. and some of these classic films uh, to the screen which we've noticed the impact that those films have when people come to these sh to, the, to the show and see gene and his his work up on the silver screen where it was meant to be what what do you think the audience can expect to see or or how do you think they're going to react to that as you say it's a, it's how it was meant to be so to see them up on that big screen is, is such a different experience and people love him it, they're watching him on youtube they're watching on their phones and things but when they, when he's up there in magical technicolor with the sound that you would have heard at the time and it's almost kind of a surround sound experience. And so, I mean, you even see the scar on the left side of his cheek and it's huge. I mean, this is the little scar that he got when he fell off of his velocipede when he rounded the corner too fast and the handlebar went through his cheek. And so it isn't just this little thing. It's something it, and He's beautiful. I mean, and everything is beautiful. I mean, that's the other thing is that you're seeing the greatest cinematography, the greatest lighting, the greatest costumes. Uh, everything is it's done to perfection. And so I think um, even even in Singing in the Rain, the, you know, there's the great myth that there's milk in the water in Singing in the Rain. So you can see the raindrops. Well, there's no milk in the water. It's just fantastic cinematography and lighting that they had the difficult thing of how do you backlight the rain so you can see it and not show the equipment in the plate glass when he's dancing in front. So everybody's working at the top of their game. And I think you you feel that, you know, it's a, it's a collaborative experience. And my thing is that I'm supposed to get up after the clip runs and and say the next thing. And a lot of times I'll be there and I'll be so engrossed in watching it that I go, oops, I got to go <laughs> talk again because I'm so You're caught on. up and I'm watching the violins and I'm watching everything and just listening and loving every minute of it and listening to the audience. I mean, that's, that's the thing is that Gene much preferred performing on stage in Broadway. Uh, he much preferred a live audience to performing in front of the camera. He never really loved, uh, he never really loved performing, but he never loved performing in front of the camera. What he loved was that experience of the audience, that you can feel the audience and you can move the audience. And he told me about the experience of uh, appearing in Pal Joey, and he's playing quite a you know, he's quite a rake in that. I mean, he's a real rascal, um, Joey. And he's 
so he said that the women would come in on the the matinee and and they would just bristle because he he was such a uh, you know such a rascal with all the women on the stage but then he he could feel them and then he could begin to dance and he would begin to sing and he could bring them in and he'd be able to turn them and i can feel the audience moving and and it's it's you know it's scripted in the sense that i go from one clip to the next and the music is the same but i can also move if i feel the audience moving in a certain direction i can i can modulate it because I, that's what i love about the live performance it, it's more extemporaneous in that sense that i have the ability to adjust and you know we have some wonderful things like the show opens on march 17th well guess what day that is and how that relates to a certain guy gene kelly uh, so i think that's fun too that we have um when we did the show in Dublin, uh, I asked them if they would turn the concert hall green uh, as people left. And so as they walked outside, the whole building just turned green. And I just think there are little moments that you can add and little little bits and pieces that touch people in different ways. And that the fact that you can touch a, f- a four-year-old, a five-year-old, I mean, they come to the show again and again. And they'll come the first night, then they want to come back again the second and the third night. That's really unusual for, uh, I think, to have something that engages such a wide range of people. They're, they're laughing at the same things and they're crying at the same things. You spoke to his ability to move a live audience and now even his simply his image when paired with this immense amount of talent uh, that's going to be collected in Seattle to move people. What was it about him? It's now 27 years since his passing, almost seven or over 70 now since, you know, Singing in the Rain debuted. And yet he's just as impactful as ever, inspiring, like you said, those four and five year olds to get out there and, and sing and dance. What was it about his work, his dancing, his music, him, Gene himself, that that you think makes him so timeless? Well, I think the fact that he he said to me, he said, the most difficult thing is to make something that is contemporary, but also timeless. And so he was aware of that. And I think in constructing things, um, say, say Singing in the Rain, for example, I mean, it it's it's very rare that you have, I think that you can create a movie that the humor uh, holds up for over 70 years and that a lot of times you'll see something. It's, it's like a, it's an eighties movie and eighties humor. And you go, Oh, that's not funny anymore. And singing the rain is such a sharp, witty script. Uh, Comden and green script is just, it's timeless. I mean, it really, it's just funny. And, <laughs> and uh, Gene Hagen is just sublime uh, and her voice and uh, this very funny thing of people dubbing people dubbing people dubbing people uh, but I think Jean um Jean was always looking to break barriers to go beyond he was he was always trying to look for things to that could be changed for innovation and trying to break boundaries and you know looking at things like dancing with an animated figure, um, Jerry the Mouse, in and that's 1945 that that came out. I mean, that's radical. It seems now you look at it and you, and it you forget how radical that is. The American in Paris ballet, 17 and a half minutes with no dialogue. It's that's revolutionary. And 
I think a lot of these things we kind of take for granted now, but I try to put them in the context of how how innovative they were. And, you know, he was trying to take, he's got this dance as a three-dimensional figure and you put it on the screen and you lose that dimension unless you have 3D technology, which we have more advanced now, but he didn't have that access then. So he would use things like, animation and lighting and color in the American Paris Ballet. And also, if you notice, Gene is always kind of moving toward the camera. There's a kinetic energy that he tries to reach by the cameras choreographed as well as the dancers are choreographed. So the camera's moving to the music and the dancer's moving to the music. And he always felt that the more, the higher he could jump, the more he could leap, the greater the sense or greater their sense of a three-dimensional figure. And you know, there are things that we don't really notice is that he put straight up and down lines in a lot of the dance numbers that, that increase that sense. And he quite literally takes the dancing into the street. I mean, there's so many examples of that with his roller skating or, or singing in the rain. And so he has this expanse where he can continue to move toward the camera and, and that was just unheard of. I mean, usually the dance prior to that was done on a, usually on a stage. And usually it wasn't really integrated into the movie. It was not part of the story. It kind of, you could essentially cut the dance number out and it wouldn't really change the movie. But with Gene, he wanted the dance to tell the story. He wanted to use movement instead of words to tell, say, I'm in love. I'm in, you know, to express the sense of joy. And so uh, instead of it being on a stage or a polished ballroom floor, he's got it out in the, in the street with puddles and things. I think of you know, how much joy it would bring him to know the joy that it's bringing all of us through this type of marrying of technologies. Is there something about his work that if he was in Seattle uh, dressing the crowds, hearing his music being played by the Seattle Symphony, that he would want us to know? That's an that's an interesting question that no one has asked. Uh, I think he would want you to know the intimacy, uh, partly the intimacy that he had with with even the musicians, and that he was on that stage when that music was recorded, and that he talked to the musicians and 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 explained how that music needed to be played and so he would say don't play 1928 gershwin you know play it sexy play it subtle sexy and so i guess what i do is i try to he can't be there with us sadly um but i try to describe what he said when he was there experiencing that music himself and how he related to the composers and how these, you know, I always, one of the things I know a lot of people are doing movies with music and everything, but what, what I was interested in was how does that number get up on that screen? How did he create that? What came first, the music or the dance? And, uh, one of my dogs is barking here. Um, so I talk about that, in which case the, it's usually that the dance comes first and then then he puts the music on it. And so I, I want people to stop and think about that instead of just kind of it just sort of goes by. I want them to really 
understand how he talked to Cole Porter and how he talked to Ira Gershwin. And he talked to Ira Gershwin and had to get special permission to change the lyrics so that he could do I Got Rhythm with the kids. And Gershwin trusted him. And uh, working with Andre Previn on the roller skating number, which is one of my favorite. I mean, basically all the people always say, what's your favorite film? And I'm like, well, in this show, you're seeing all my favorites and a lot of Gene, they're really Gene's favorites too. So that's what's kind of fun is it's just sort of taking taking his work out. And what you see is is the breadth of his work, the breadth of his choreography. You see classical ballet. You see Heather on the Hill with Sid, the great Sid Charisse. You see uh, the Pas de Deux with Leslie Caron in American in Paris. But you'll also see the tap dancing on roller skates and and uh, kind of wild, uh, wonderful, sexy, hot dancing with Mitzi Gaynor that he choreographed for Les Girls and the people don't often watch. So it's an opportunity to see a lot of things that you might not regularly see, um, certainly at home. So. Yeah, we've talked about the the timelessness of Gene and his work, you know, throughout the, uh, the the show here. Even so much as the influence that he obviously had on Seth MacFarlane to have him, you know, come in and do that scene where where he's dancing with Stewie Griffin um, as well, and kind of that Jerry the Mouse uh, kind of thing. But you, you know, along those lines, you know, you're obviously so open to spreading the, uh, the the great things about him, you know, through appearances and Q and A's. You've invited artists like the cast of La La Land to uh, examine his archives. What are some of the things that you get asked, you know, from these people that are so interested in his legacy? Well, and and to kind of preface that, Gene uh, said to me, he said, uh, I want to be remembered for being behind the camera. I want to be remembered as a director and choreographer. And very often people will say to me, not not the dancers and theater people who come here to see the archives because they they do know, but a lot of people uh, in the who just stand in line to say hello will say, "Did he ever choreograph anything, or did he ever direct anything?" And and so his, I think his persona on the screen is so big, so grand, and so beautiful that people forget that he created what you're seeing. They forget that he choreographed the Singing in the Rain number and how he did that. It was such a cerebral process for him that he, he a little screen ran in his head and he could see the dance uh, and then he would go in the next day and put it on the dancers. Uh, and he said, I'd, I'd like to be remembered for creating a particularly American style of dance and for changing the look of dance on film. And and I think people, again, they don't, a lot of times they'll mention a, a Bobby Fosse or a Jerome Robbins, but the, you don't get a Robbins and a Fosse without a Kelly. Kelly's in the lead of the pack. And so I try to, he said, if anybody's going to get this word out, it will be you. So I always, he's kind of sitting right <laughs> here and I, I want to keep getting that out because very often he's left off of lists of great choreographers and directors and you know, Sing in the Rain, On the Town, Hello Dolly. I mean, we've got some big, big ones there that I think need to be recognized for directing. And so I, people ask, um, it depends on the age. Uh, young, very young people want to know, um, was he romantic? Uh, was he, um, when did you know that you were in love with him? Uh, how did you know uh 
when did you know he was going to die? Um, these, they're very powerful questions that, that kids ask without any malice. You know, it's without any agenda. And so I answer those questions and they've helped me in many ways, I think, to the shows actually, people say, how can you do this? How can you go out with this really intimate, personal show or two shows? I have the one woman show and the symphonic show and and talk about him in this very personal way. And I said, well, it really helps because it's it's a way to to really bring make sure that his work is recognized for what his contribution was. So that he's remembered for the many, many layers of work but also for the many dimensions of the man. I think people don't realize he spoke French, he spoke Italian, he uh, read Latin, he spoke Yiddish. He very often just sat there, he would plow through a book a night, um, He and books in a range that you can't even believe. And he had memorized so much poetry, and he knew, it was such a nuanced way of using the language. It wasn't, you know, when you meet people and they're, you can feel that they're trying to show off how much they know. It wasn't for Gene. It was just pure delight. He just, and he loved the sound of words. So, and the fact that he was a true romantic, I mean, he was one of the great romantics. Um, and I think that that really distinguishes not only his personality, but also the movies, the movies are, are romantic. And I think that was one of the things that he really missed as movies progressed. And he said, the romance is gone. And, and he really did miss that because that was a major part of, of what he was doing. People would sometimes try to put um, political agendas and things into the movies and think that sing in the rain was, I don't know, the McCarthy era, some statement about that. And she said, no, it was to bring joy. And I think during lockdown, um, in many ways, I got so much mail from people and people were screening his movies. His movies were on the top 10 list to watch um, during COVID. And I think they provided a kind of lifeline for people uh, that the people were looking for something, some outlet that was was joyful. And even movies like Brigadoon, which I have in the show, um, that worked for a lot of people. And one there was one village in, in England that it was raining and everybody, they put Gene on the loudspeakers and everybody came out and socially distanced at six feet. And they all had umbrellas and did singing in the rain. And I think, so he provided a kind of communal spirit when everyone was isolated. And I think that that's that's critical. And I think now if we can get back into theaters, then people will experience the communal experience of being in a in the house, in the room. Oh, just something that was so missed during quarantine and something that, like you said, sometimes it's okay to sit down in front of a movie and just feel good afterwards. We mentioned La La Land, and uh, that was one of the first films that we screened at the Roxy, the historic Roxy Theater here as part of an event post-COVID. And people have mixed feelings about that movie. It's definitely a love story. It's it's a pretty poignant love story. And not to, not to have any spoilers out there, but the boy doesn't get the girl in the end. And that's one of those, it, it caught a lot of people off guard because it did seem so classically romantic. And you obviously had those folks, that, that talent from that film, come in and, uh, and want his influence on, on that movie. 
What do you think that Gene would make of the modern musical? Not necessarily La La Land specifically, but the modern musical. And what do you think his biggest impact has been on the way that those movies are made? Today, I was just rereading one of the interviews he did, and people were asking, it was, they were asking about Flashdance, um, which is now quite in the past. But his response goes to your point, which was that Gene had trouble with people dubbing, uh, that, that you'd have duplicates and that, that you would get, instead of showing, he always wanted you to shoot the dancer full figure and head on so you could actually see the dance, that, that that's, the, that's important. But when now when you begin to show a close-up of a hand or a close-up of a head turning or little point shoes and you've got the real dancer who's in the background full figure, but you've got the non-dancer kind of faking with you know body parts, that did not work for him at all. He just felt that that was, was not good. And so I think that now, you know, it, it was even hard for Gene when he was casting Hello, Dolly, to find triple threats, to find people who sing, dance, and act. He scoured the world, and he found Michael Crawford, and fortunately, and and others. But I think now you have a lot of people who can dance very well. You have a lot of people who can sing very well. You have a lot of people who can act very well, but to find the triple threats... And then the problem is that the studios are looking for stars. And so the because they think that will sell the movie. And so you, you've got non-dancers in roles. Um, I think La La Land, for me, it worked in La La Land because uh, Damien was very careful not to. They're not real. They're not supposed to be real dancers. And he does shoot them full figure. He doesn't try to fake it. He doesn't put in. They are what they are. And it's funny, everybody goes either hot or cold on La La Land, it seems. And I'm I'm on the hotter side because my hat is off to Damien. I think it's hard to make a musical. It's so expensive now. And without the studio system where you had everybody under one roof, you had everybody was there, the costume, the writers, the music, the designers, the dancers, now you have to pull those people from all around the world. And They're all basically contractors. Yeah, nobody. And and Damien kind of tried to uh, mimic the old system by renting a big warehouse in the valley and putting everybody under one roof. And he would bring everybody together to watch the old movies and to watch the scenes and see how things were shot. And so... He was aware of it, but but when you bring in scores of dancers and all these people, it's a mammoth task. And most people, most studios, most their businesses, and they don't want to risk that. It's too big a risk factor. So what what you find now is you find they're remaking, they're making a movie of a Broadway show, or they're making a Broadway show of a movie. And so I I feel like Damien tried to create something new, and I think that and Lionsgate supported that, and I so I think I wish we had more of that because that's where we're going to get real talent and where we're going to get real I think real lasting things things that are are different and revolutionary. We might not like everything. I mean Babylon is again hot and cold, and but if you stick with it, it's incredibly powerful very very moving and obviously there's a beautiful nod to gene at the end of that that just i mean it not i just took my breath away so i think i i'm kind of rooting for the 
the people who have the guts to do something and to do it, to do what Jean was doing, which is the influence of showing the dance, showing the figure, don't don't fake it all. Don't don't do chopped up body parts and things that you can. Gene shot generally with one camera and he coordinated the movement of the camera to the musical beats. So when he turned that footage over to the editor, this take connected to this take like that. They were like puzzle pieces. So the editor had no choice but to link this to this because the music was connected. Nowadays, you may have eight cameras shooting and all that footage is just turned over to editors and the editors make the choice. And Gene said, no, I edited in the can. I edited in the camera. So he knew what that was going to be, the outcome of it. He created it from beginning to end in his head. So he knew and controlled that. Now, I mean, now it's editors choosing a lot of the and and directors who don't necessarily understand dance. But in, in Xanadu, I talked to the man who uh, shot, was the cinematographer on Xanadu, and he told me a funny story that when he came in, um, Gene, Gene came in and, and this guy was, put the camera on the floor. He thought he could get a real interesting angle on the on the dance that way. And Gene just looked at him and went, he said, bring the camera up and you shoot full figure and you shoot head on. And there's none of this distorting of the body at weird angles and uh, faking the bodies. So so I, he'd cheer for the underdogs, I think. He'd cheer for the underdogs and the people willing to make a movie that might not be a blockbuster, but might might actually be something we're watching in 70 years. I think we'll be watching something like La La Land. I know I will. I, that's I'm I'm in the camp of really like Matt. Matt and I have talked about this. We've had yeah, same here. We have, fre- we have friends who despise it, but they're, they're welcome to their opinion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm curious about Gene's philosophy on collaboration. Obviously, as a director, choreographer, and even as an actor, he's had to collaborate with any number of people. Is that part of the business that he enjoyed? I would say yes, but I would say before that, I would say that that's the first thing he always said is that it is a collaborative effort, that there is no auteur, there's no single person who's guiding this because I mean, there's a guide, but there, but it, you do not have Gene up there on the screen looking brilliant without this entire team. And it, it's everybody. It's the grips. It's the, it's the mechanics. It's the people driving the, um, the dolly. It's so he recognized all of those people and that each had the same for him. It was, they were at the same level. There was no, um, it wasn't the auteur theory. It was it was definitely a collaborative effort, and and it it took all of that to make him appear the way he did on the screen. Was there anybody in particular he uh, enjoyed working with more than more than someone else? I don't know if there was more because it was just whatever the team was that was with a particular movie. Because you would have a different cinematographer, you would have, and he loved them all. I mean, they were people like Harry Stradling and these are geniuses and these are, these are gods in Gene's eye. The, the music, the musicians were gods in Gene's eyes. The, the composers were gods in his eyes. I mean, they, so I think, um, 
you know, you have the collaboration with Vincent Minnelli. I think it, it worked extremely well. I mean, uh, I just saw Leslie Caron when I was speaking in London in December. She was very clear. She said, um, because people think it's Vincent Minnelli behind the camera in the dance sequences in the in the ballet, for example. And she said, oh, no, it was Gene Kelly behind the camera. And, and Gene was the director of those sequences. And he was guiding that, but he worked and always talked to Vincent and he always talked to Irene Sheriff. And he, so it was, it all kind of moved together. You didn't, he wasn't out there just doing everything on his own. It was all, and, and a lot of it happened at his house, um, which was our house, the, on Rodeo drive that after going in first thing in the morning to rehearse and then shoot and work on, you know, put numbers on, on camera then the crew, uh, his assistants, uh, Carol Haney, Jeannie Coyne, who would eventually become the second uh, wife, um, Stanley Donnan, they would all pour over to Jean's house, uh, have a, a dinner, and then start in work and lay in what was going to happen the next day. So it was just a constant process. And and they were shooting six days a week back then. So this was this was essentially... For Gene, I mean, I, in a way, it was almost 24 hours a day. It was, it was, you know, very short time for sleep and and most of it work and always that brain on going. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. And we are so looking forward to the event coming up uh, in March in a couple of weeks here. And uh, we obviously know this isn't the only thing you have going on with regards to, uh, to Gene's legacy. How can people keep up with you, uh, your projects and find out more about the work you're doing? Oh, that's thank you. Uh, well, on Instagram, it's Gene Kelly Legacy, uh, and then on Facebook, it's Gene Kelly The Legacy. I'm on LinkedIn, and also you can go to the official Gene Kelly. Uh, it's GeneKelly.com, uh, where we will eventually, very shortly, launch the big uh, website. But now you can still go on it for notices and. And you can write to me. I do respond to, if you send me a message on any of those things, I do respond. And if you don't hear back from me, send it again, because it means I somehow missed it. I, I do read everything and I read every comment on Instagram and every comment on Facebook. And I try to respond. Somebody asked me, who does your, who posts your Instagram and who posts your, I was like, I do, I I. I do everything. I mean, it, you're talking to me. It's not, um, there's not some ghost back here doing everything. And so I really try to make it a person because what I've noticed is with social media and everything, I, at first I really thought, oh God, I don't want to, oh, that's going to be horrible. And But then the more I began to kind of let myself out and become more personally involved and engaged, the more people came out and they became more engaged. And the comments are so moving and, and interesting and the questions or the way that they describe his the position of his body. Somebody described it as uh, poetry in motion today, one of the shots that I posted. I'm terribly touched by the way people have taken it seriously and and they communicate in a way like they're, they're all saying, bring the show to Kansas City Symphony, bring the show to New York Philharmonic, bring it to Boston, bring it here. And that's great. That's what we'll do. We're, it will take this, this will go across the US. It goes, it's already been abroad, but basically if you build it, I will come. That's kind of the 
philosophy and and I do all kinds of I actually wore this scarf because this is the other one thing we launched in the summer last summer in July during lockdown was the Gene Kelly homage scarf which um so you can see the, oh that's um, yeah where beautiful. do we get one of those yeah <laughs> well you can go to the Hermes store and and they're they made them in eight colors and they kind of fast track this usually it takes about two years to generate a scarf but they fast tracked it so we during covid we did this in meetings over zoom and um yeah i'm very happy about it it was a it's a canadian artist named jeff mcfittridge who just lives over here in silver lake who designed it and i just love it because it's not gene per se but it's the homage to him so everyone i wanted the sense of that Gene never wanted people to imitate what he did. He didn't want people to just mimic the dances. He he said, take what I did and go beyond. And so you see people Usher is now in a in a show um and and he's doing his version of Singing in the Rain with a nod saying that Gene was a huge inspiration for him. And you've got Derek Huff out there dancing in his own show, and he's got a nod to Gene. And, and you've got Hugh Jackman doing shows, and he nods to Gene. I mean, these are, it just goes on and on and on. And then I've got two-year-olds uh, watching Moses Supposes and, and mimicking the number. <laughs> so, I got, I got one of those too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's amazing. I mean, people, um, so it's it's really, I mean, you know, he's gone. Yes, I mean, he, he is gone, but he's not. I mean, he's really, he's really cool and hot. I mean, that's, I think a lot of people, um, I I think one of the reasons he, he still is, is that he decided to bow out. He said, when I could no longer jump over the tables and do what I did, it was time to stop. And so I think he still resonates with people in a very contemporary way because the dance is is contemporary and timeless. And I, it has influenced everybody, uh, Michael Jackson, Prince, um, Paula Abdul. I mean, it's it's just it just goes on and on. Beyonce, I just heard. Um, so, I, I think um, I think he'll just keep rolling along. And you know, he always said, "I'd love to come back in a hundred years and see what people are watching." And um, we're at twenty seven years, and I just think at a hundred, people are still going to be watching his work. Well, we just saw "Singing in the Rain" at the Tacoma Musical Playhouse over in Tacoma earlier this season. A beautiful production. Definitely would uh, does Gene's work justice, and it's just when, when as long as those things keep happening, and people like Hugh Jackman and, and those, they'll influence other people. Who will influence other people? His legacy is is going to be here forever, and that's really a great is. thing. And I think he, I mean, I know he would be really, really proud of that. I don't think he ever estimated that he would be con- continuing. I think he always figured there would be another person who would come and kind of knock him out of place, but. He's really the go-to guy. And I, I get so much mail from people that say, my grandmother introduced my mother, my mother introduced me, and I've now introduced my kids. And they're introducing their kids, so my grandkids. So it just goes, it's like a, it's kind of this wonderful passing of the of the legacy. So I, I just kind of try to keep it out as much as I can. But even when I'm not here, uh, when I kick the bucket, it's still, it's still going to go on. I, I think there's... There, there are lots of I have lots of little people carrying the batons. They're all taking the batons and going forward. And I love it. I think that's part of it is I get to just 
I get the fantastic job of handing off the batons to so many people. And it's really a, a privilege for me. So th- I thank you so much for in- including me in the show. And I- I'm so delighted you'll be there. And um, and I look forward to meeting everybody. It really is fun to meet people after the show because it, it can t- I always see it as like the show for me begins the minute people enter the door and then goes until they leave. And so greeting them and hearing their comments and their some people they'll come up and they'll say, you know, I loved him before, but I love him even more now. They feel closer to him and they understand him and they see the depth of him and the and the kind of guy he was, the decency and the integrity and the uh, humanity, which I think is really something that's vital to all of us right now. So Couldn't I can't agree wait. more. And yeah, we can't wait either. Thank you so much for bringing this uh, to the Seattle community. We're excited to see it. We're excited to meet you. And it's just, yeah, what a pleasure, uh, not only to experience him uh, in all his glory, uh, but now we feel one degree away from the coolest cat that ever lived, ever treaded the boards. <laughs> well, yeah, and then on that note, we can end on these. I thought you might like to see his um, his Converse tennis shoes. So he was even, he had the Chuck Taylors. He was even ahead and it still has the, the dirt from our last walk um, in it. But so he was even way ahead sartorially. I mean, he got it. This was... He got it way before, <laughs> like like now people are wearing them, and but Amazing. it's like yeah, but he was doing that seventy years. I've ago. got a pair of those downstairs, and I'm going to wear them a lot more often now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Maybe I'll wear them on All maybe right. wear them on the nineteenth when we when we come and meet you. I think it's I love it because I love it because people will be lined up, and I'll go. Oh, that's kind of interesting. So yeah, a lot of a lot of young people have them on. I think it's great. I just love it. I just love it. I want a Gene Kelly Converse. I'm, to, I'm working on that. There you go. There you go. Let us know how we can help. Well, thank you so much for spending okay. this time with us. We're glad to be able to play a small part in uh, in bringing people out and keeping his legacy going. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And we look forward to seeing you on the 19th, uh, Seattle Symphony, the March 17th through 19th. Really one of a kind event. Patricia, thank you so much for, for taking some time with us. Yeah, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Anytime. Let's do it again. Well, a big thank you again to our guest, Patricia Ward-Kelly. Patricia will be in Seattle in two weeks, March 17th through 19th, to host a truly one-of-a-kind event we've been talking about tonight at the Seattle Symphony, Gene Kelly, A Life in Music. Do not miss this. Get your tickets now at seattlesymphony.org. And if you enjoyed episode 72, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. You can find all the latest on HeilmanandHaver.com, along with all of our past episodes, stage reviews, and popular segments like Get to Know a Theater, In the Mix, and behind-the-scenes artist interviews. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver. 